Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? There is probably no Christian who has spent more time talking to big name, well-known atheists than Justin Brierley. Back in the 2000s, he began a radio show called Unbelievable, where he interviewed Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and some of the most famous atheists who were writing at that particular time. And since then, it's become a podcast, the Unbelievable Podcast, which, by the way, is one of my favorite podcasts out there. And he's continued this journey of talking to people who have doubts and questions about Christianity. And as a result, he's had a front seat in how atheism and the discourse around it has changed radically over the last few decades. And I think he'll be really surprised. Maybe be encouraged even by what he's seen and where that discourse is going. So let's hop right in. Justin Brierley, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, absolutely. Justin, you've been talking to atheists in public for, gosh, how many years is it? Is this 18 years? Yeah, getting on for 18 years. I started The Unbelievable Show back in 2005, and I kind of measure it by the age of my oldest son, Noah, because <laughs> he was just about to turn one at that time, and now he's 18 and a half. So yeah, I guess that was something like 17 and a half years ago. Yeah, it's been a great ride since. Lots of learning that I did along the way, bringing Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate. And so it's been an amazing sort of opportunity for me to grow in my own sort of knowledge and faith and get to obviously sit down with so many interesting people across the divide, you know. You really have sat down with some of the most brilliant thinkers out there, not just amongst atheists, but also amongst Christians. And when you started, atheists like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they became quite famous at the time. It's back 2005. Mm. They became very famous at the time for dismantling religions of all varieties, but especially Christianity. And in the U.S., which is my context, not your context, these atheists would have typically been associated with liberal politics, and they would have been loudly derided by conservative pundits. And if if you were in college at the time, which I was, I graduated from high school in 2006, it wasn't uncommon to hear my professors refer to their works as proof of Christianity's intellectual shallowness. And yet, over the last few years, something strange has happened. Those atheists have focused their canons on a new religion, what they might call wokeness or critical theory. And in a strange turn of events, they've become bedfellows with a lot of the U.S. conservative pundits that once opposed them. And so there's countless examples of this. One of my favorites is James Lindsay, who wrote the quintessential textbook for arguing Christians out of their faith. And then he writes a book called Cynical Theories, Dismantling Progressive Ideologies Like Critical Theory. And Christians love this book. You'll see conservative Christians talking about this book rather frequently. And they've suddenly become the enemies in some senses of the colleges that once promoted their thinking. And so if you read them carefully, you know, they see wokeness, critical theory as a new ascendant religion. That's precisely why they're out to attack it. And so on today's show, I want to explore and understand that shift from your perspective, as someone who's really had a front row seat as a Christian to this transformation that's happened, and specifically uncover how should Christians respond? I mean, I know you're good friends with N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, as you call him across the pond, and he's warned that Christians joining the attack against critical theory may inadvertently throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater, especially when it comes to discussions of race. But I want to start with you. What led you back in 2005 to start having conversations with atheists? I think it really came out of my personal experience of having been challenged myself, especially at university, by people who didn't share my faith. And having to kind of work through that for myself, I started to read some of the classic Christian thinkers, C.S. Lewis and others, 
who do offer an intellectual defense for Christian faith. And then that just sort of percolating into an idea a few years after I'd begun sort of cutting my teeth in journalism and radio, kind of becoming a co-host on a breakfast show here in the UK on a Christian radio station. And, and by the way, it's worth saying, I know you guys have lots of Christian radio stations in the US. We don't have many at all here in the UK. In fact, I think Premier Christian Radio is one of only two. So it's quite an unusual thing and a little bit more, in a sense, open-ended in terms of what we can do with it. And I ended up asking the CEO of the station if I could have a slot on a Saturday, just once a week, where I could actually kind of get out of the Christian bubble and actually invite non-Christians onto the show to engage them in dialogue and discussion and just see what happened really. And it was interesting because it did happen, as you say, just at the time when new atheism was really ramping up. So I think the show began around the time that The God Delusion got published by Richard Dawkins. There were other kind of high profile atheist books coming out, Sam Harris's books, Christopher Hitchens' books. It was that kind of publishing boom of the new atheism at the time. And so in many ways, it was the sort of perfect show to kind of respond to that. And I quickly realized, ah, there's a real energy around this, you know, and the new atheist, in a sense, gave me so much material to work with for the next several years, as you know, so many of their books and articles and conferences were kind of causing a lot of stir in the land of internet and public square and so on. So yeah, a lot of those early conversations, a lot of those debates were with some of those key people. It was kind of Christians having to kind of up their game and kind of start to answer some of these intellectual questions and moral questions about Christianity. I just was able to be in the middle of some of those conversations and helping churches and Christians to respond, but trying to do it. I think the big difference between what Unbelievable is represented versus other sort of typical apologetics ministries is that we genuinely tried to do it in this dialogue format where we heard the best of both sides, ideally. And inevitably, not everyone liked that. You know, On a Christian radio station, you don't necessarily expect to hear cogent atheist perspectives being broadcast alongside the Christian defence. So, But there were lots who loved it, lots of people who felt this is exactly what we need. We need to get out of our echo chambers. We need to sort of have these open conversations with people who disagree with us because you're only a Google click away from this stuff anyway. And we can't pretend it doesn't exist and push it under the carpet. We have to sort of have these conversations and they may be sometimes uncomfortable, but actually, as I discovered in the process, actually, I found Christianity could stand on its own two feet intellectually, even against some of these well-known atheists and intellectual thinkers. So that was a great way to begin the show in those early years. Yeah, it really was perfect timing on your part, whether it was intentional or accidental. <laughs> it, it wasn't intentional. It was a God thing. That's all I'm going to put it down to, you know. How did those early conversations shape and, and form your faith? I had grown up in a Christian environment, kind of made faith my own, sort of in my late teens. As I say, went through sort of spells of intellectual questions and doubting and so on, as many people do. But it kind of come to a settled sense that, you know, this made sense to me. But what I quickly discovered, you know, as you get into the questions and arguments was just how much stuff there was I hadn't ever thought about, you know, lots of areas of doctrine and theology that I didn't realize there were debates and controversies that existed in so many areas. So I kind of had a sort of wide-ranging theology education by proxy of just hosting these shows, you know, week in and week out. Not only because, you know, I was hosting these debates between skeptics and Christians, but also often between Christians of different varieties, you know, with different perspectives on, you know, divine sovereignty or heaven and hell or the creation narratives or whatever it might be. I was quickly learning just how diverse and interesting the sweep of Christian thought and theology is and starting to put the pieces together for myself and gradually kind of building up the sense of how I understand the Bible and reality in light of that. And it was probably about 10 years, to be honest, into the show where I finally wrote a book where I said, I think I processed enough now to be able to kind of offer what I think is my case for Christian faith. And so that book came out and it was really distilling a lot of what I felt for me were the most compelling arguments for Christian faith from a kind of theological and apologetic perspective. So that's been an exciting journey, you know, because I've done such a lot of growing and learning along the way just through having the privilege of sitting and moderating these discussions. Yeah, you know, when I think about your show, I kind of think about it as two things. A digital Areopagus, you know, there's that story in Acts 17 where Paul is invited to come and talk about Jesus and the resurrection with the finest, best thinkers in Athens at the time. And he kind of befuddles them. They don't seem to know what to do with them. And yet I think 
that was obviously a huge part of how Christianity grew was this kind of dialoguing discourse with some of the best thinkers of the ancient era. And I also think about it as kind of a digital synagogue because the other thing Paul did is he would go into the synagogues and he would discourse with people about, hey, is Jesus really the fulfillment of the promises that we read about in the Old Testament? And you see that happen as you have Christians on your show discoursing about, hey, how do we think about God in the modern era? How do we think about various, like you said, theological controversies? And I love that. I think that's why it's been so appealing to so many people is because so much of the discourse today is one-sided in the sense that you only get a single voice sharing a single perspective. And you've done a fine job of bringing together people who disagree and facilitating dialogue, which is refreshing because, I mean, even back when you started, I think it was incredibly rare. But I'd love to go back to those early days, 2005. You know, in many ways, the new atheists gained steam after 9-11 when radical Islamic terrorists crashed two planes into the Twin Towers and another plane into the Pentagon. How did 9-11 shape the discourse around atheism and make it more plausible to a wider audience? I think it's hard to underestimate just how much impetus that gave to the new atheism, which kind of came hot on its heels. I think up to that point, generally speaking, skeptics and secular folk were willing to kind of give a pass to religion, even if they didn't think it made much sense or whatever. But generally, the narrative was it's there and it's probably not doing that much harm. I think the public narrative changed at that point to a religion is not only false, but it's evil as well. It has these terrible effects. You know, there was this popular meme, wasn't there? Science flies people to the moon, religion flies people into buildings. You know, these were the memes that were coming out of that kind of new atheist strain of thinking because of 9-11. I think that inevitably there was a kind of moral impetus to this movement, the new atheist movement. Religion is bad for us. We need to get past this superstition that causes such dreadful things like 9-11 and move into an age of reason and science and progressive thinking and so on. I think that was also coupled, especially, you know, when I was doing the show, there were also other controversies circulating in the sort of era of George Bush's presidency and so on over teaching of creationism versus evolution in school. There was the Dover Kitts Miller trial concerning intelligent design in the classroom and all that kind of thing. And I think there was just a, a general sense that religion is radicalizing people and causing, you know, 9-11 type disasters. And it's also trying to create falsehoods and superstition in the classroom and it's interfering with critical thinking and so on. All of those factors, I think, drove the new atheist kind of juggernaut. <laughs> and I think it also coincided with the rise of the blogosphere, especially in that time. This was sort of just pre kind of what we now think of as social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. There was much more of a sense of people finding each other. And I got the sense that the new atheism also really thrived on the fact that in what was still largely a predominantly religious country in North America, these pockets of people in Texas and you know the Bible Belt and elsewhere who didn't like religion or felt oppressed in some way by Christianity or the Christian subculture, they found each other. And suddenly these thriving kind of online communities and blogs and, you know, then the conferences that were arranged, all of that kind of stuff gathered ahead of steam. And for a good number of years, I think that all contributed to this publishing boom of the new atheists that we've mentioned. And I think a lot of people were thinking, you know, this is the end of organized religion. You know, finally, the enlightenment has sort of <laughs> hit home and the internet exists and we can finally put all this Christian stuff to bed. That was where it was. I think, funnily enough, I've got a book coming out on this, the whole chapter of which is about the rise and fall of new atheism, because it did actually end up kind of imploding under its own weight in very interesting ways. And in the end, when I look back, I see that the conversation, as you intimated at the beginning, has changed a lot, actually, from those early days of that new atheist rhetoric. It seems like new atheism has lost its popularity. And so I'm curious to hear precisely how you think it imploded under its own weight. But speaking in the U.S., the further we got removed from 9-11, the less urgent the critiques of new atheism seemed to feel. And in the U.S. at least, you know, atheism never became popular. Instead, we've seen the rapid growth of what are called nuns, so people who don't identify as any religion in particular. And today, there's about as many nuns in the U.S. as there are Protestants. According to one survey, ARDA, it said that the U.K., your context, in 2018, about 52% of the population identifies as irreligious, but it said only 1.4% identified as atheists. That number seemed really small to me. I don't know if it's accurate. I think it is, and I think that is a shared characteristic. It's interesting that to be non-religious does not necessarily, or non-practicing, does not necessarily mean atheist, because I think the word atheist for a lot of people still carries a certain type of resonance or identity that they're not necessarily willing to get on 
and when you actually go and look into these polls, it's very interesting because even when some ticks non-religious, they might be interestingly also saying, but I do pray occasionally. Lots of them are spiritual, but not religious. You know, there's a lot of kind of murkiness in what that actually means to any individual. But yeah, I mean, here in the UK, the most recent surveys for the first time saw the majority of people not tick Christian. So there'd always been a kind of, for want of a better word, nominal Christianity in the UK, a sort of default thing where at least the majority of people still tended to just by default kind of say, well, yes, I suppose my religion is Christian, even if they'd never set foot in the church. That I think has been on the wane for a long time. And for the first time, you know, it was less than 50% that actually ticked Christian in the last survey. Obviously, beyond that, the numbers who actually go to church has obviously been far, far smaller than that in the UK for a long time as well. So that's all going on. But as you say, that doesn't translate into people being sold out atheist materialists by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) I don't think the numbers of people who signed up members of the British Humanist Association or the Secular Society has particularly skyrocketed in line with the number of people just claiming to be non-religious. So it's more of a kind of vague agnosticism, if anything, that seems to sort of be where people sit a lot of the time. So it seems like full-throated atheism never took root in the U.S. It sounds like it never really took root in the U.K. either, despite the popularity of these thinkers. I mean, I think for some of our younger listeners, these names like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, they might recognize, they might not realize that back in 2005, 2006, these were big deal names that a lot of people (laughs) were discussing and talking about. But it seems like their ideas never really took root. So why do you think that's the case? It depends what you mean by take root. I think to some extent, there is still a kind of default atheism that exists to a large degree in the academy. And it's not probably expressed as dogmatically as the Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris's expressed in the new atheist phase, as it were. But I think part of the reason, like their kind of very dogmatic version of atheism didn't really kind of eventually end up sticking is the new atheism kind of, as I say, imploded under its own way. And the reason for this was that once this kind of cadre of journalists and scientists and public intellectuals and the many people who followed them had all decided that religion was false and potentially evil. The problem was beyond that joint understanding, they then discovered they couldn't agree on anything else. And that is the problem, is that as far as it simply presents a negative view on something, you know, God does not exist, you know, most atheists can say, yeah, I'll get on board with that. But it was when they started to try and organize as a movement that was going to say something positive about what do we do? Are we here to kind of make a difference? Suddenly you started to see an awful lot of fallout because suddenly no one could agree on what what we should replace God with, basically. (laughs) Is it science, reason, critical thinking? Is it like free thought and everyone being able to kind of have their own opinions and express them just as they want to, which was kind of, you know, where a lot of the atheists wanted to go. Or was it kind of, no, well, if we're atheists, surely that means we're feminists and we're LGBT kind of activists. And suddenly it became quickly apparent that the new atheism itself was composed of a lot of people with very different ideas about where this movement should be headed. Interesting. There was this one particular moment, which for me was kind of like a catalyst for where you could see things start to fall apart. It was kind of in the same way that the Me Too movement, you know, did for Hollywood and the Harvey Weinstein scandal kind of suddenly led to a huge kind of rethinking of the whole idea of male patriarchy and feminism and so on. If you went a bit further back in the kind of history of the new atheism, you get something that got dubbed Elevator Gate. And it was a particular conference where it was one of these atheist conferences that had been organized, lots of people coming. Some of the great and good were there, Richard Dawkins and others were on the panel. And there was one particular atheist blogger called Rebecca Watson, who ran a blog called Skeptic. And she had been speaking during one of the sessions about the problem that she saw that existed within the atheist community of patriarchy and sexism, and how she had so frequently run into attitudes that should not be present in the atheist skeptical community. That evening, as people were having drinks in the bar and so on, she was going to return to her room. And a man got in the elevator with her and said, I really loved your talk tonight. Would you like to go back for coffee in my room? He was basically propositioning her. And she felt incredibly uncomfortable about this and wrote a blog shortly after saying, this is the exact problem that I was talking about, that <laughs> men can assume that they can just basically proposition you, you know, when you're on your own in an elevator. Anyway, this blog got picked up 
but people started talking about it and it might have kind of gone the way of anything you know except for the fact that Richard Dawkins decided to weigh in on this and comment now Richard Dawkins you know as soon as Richard Dawkins says anything about that you know as the sort of de facto leader at the time at least of this new atheist movement it's going to be interesting what he says and he wrote a very sarcastic sort of dismissive blog response to it entitled Dear Muslima which kind of took on the role of a Muslim woman who is experiencing persecution and, you know, all kinds of awful subjugation and everything and saying, but it's nothing compared to my poor American sisters who are being propositioned in elevators. Yeah. It was very sarcastic. And that just poured gasoline on this kind of debate and it just blew up. And suddenly you had people who were like, well, I agree with Richard Dawkins. Stop complaining about things. You know, we've never had it so good. And others saying, this is awful. The atheist movement is dominated by old white men who just don't understand these issues. And from then on, you just had increasing, increasing, increasing numbers of these kinds of issues developing, people splitting up to the point where basically you couldn't hold an atheist conference anymore because no one could agree who would be on the platform because all the speakers had fallen out with each other. And it was just a really interesting sort of move. And it does very much tie in with the cultural move that was happening towards the increasing polarization in social media on those hot button woke issues, you know, issues around identity and sexuality, feminism, race. And as soon as people basically had to take a position on that within the atheist community, suddenly the whole thing just fell apart and everyone started arguing with it. I mean, the arguments between the atheists were far worse than anything you saw between the atheists and the Christians up to that point. So I kind of chart this in the book that's coming out. It's just the very first chapter because I think that was a catalyst to the conversation changing quite significantly on faith and culture thereafter. But yeah, that was kind of how I see things kind of having panned out on that whole movement. I had no idea about Elevator Gate, so I'm finding this incredibly fascinating. <laughs> it sounds like we can agree on the negative, but we can't agree on the positive. And once you get to a certain point where you're trying to create a coherent movement, you have to be able to agree on positives. And if I'm catching what you're saying right, there was a fracturing that took place, a fragmentation that took place that led these different atheists in slightly different directions. And they were far worse to each other than they were to the Christians or the religious people that they were debating with. Why well, I find that so interesting is I think we're seeing something parallel take place in the present, at least in the U.S., amongst Christians, as they're trying to wrestle with some of these same issues, we're seeing a similar fracturing and fragmenting take place. And like you said, the Christians seem to be worse to the Christians than they are to people outside of the faith. I find that really fascinating. Let me shift, because I want to come back to how this changed the atheistic movement, but I want to talk about a slightly different group that seems, I can't figure out how they fit into this picture, and maybe you'll help me make sense of it, but it seems like in the 2010s, the new atheist movement lost steam, and it really didn't take root at least again in the U.S., a different group of thinkers began to elevate and grab a lot of attention. And these are people who I would describe as agnostic, but deeply appreciative of Christianity. So I'm thinking about people like Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, who I don't think any of them identify as Christian, but all of them have a deep appreciation, so far as I can tell, for Orthodox Christianity. So how are these thinkers slightly different than the atheistic thinkers that preceded them? Well, it's funny, we're practically going through my book chapter by chapter at this point, because this is precisely what I move on to in the next chapter of the book, which is the way the conversation did shift. You mentioned someone at the beginning, James Lindsay, who is one example of one of these public intellectuals where they've kind of completely shifted their focus from critiquing religion to critiquing the woke issues that they're far more worried about. His friend and colleague, actually, Peter Bogosian, was someone I mentioned in the book. And that's just another really instructive instance, very similar to James Lindsay, where back in probably 2013, 14, maybe, Peter Bogosian had basically written his new atheist book, which was called A Manual for Creating Atheists. It basically dismissed Christianity or faith as a sort of psychiatric delusion, effectively. And I had him on for an interesting debate with Tim McGrew, who's a Christian philosopher. And that was great. And it was one of those classic sort of new atheist versus Christian apologist debates. A few years later, this would have been 2018, I was coming out to do an event in Portland, which is where at the time Peter Bogosian was philosophy tutor at Portland State University. And I was looking to do a live event, Christian atheist thing. So I reached out to him and said, Peter, would you be interested in doing your atheist thing in a live discussion show? And he emailed me back, and I can't quote it word for word, but he essentially said, Justin, you'd be surprised how differently I view these issues now. I've changed a lot, 
And I no longer regard Christianity as my bet noir, the thing I need to take down. In fact, quite the opposite. I've got a lot more in common with a lot of Christians now than a lot of my fellow secular folk, basically. And he basically politely declined doing it for that reason, but said, basically, we should get together and talk about this. And he said, you'll see some of what I've been working on in a few months' time. Was this before or after he released all of their fake papers? That so this said? was shortly before the whole hoax papers that him and James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose eventually did end up releasing. So as for anyone you know who doesn't know this story, basically a group of academics at Portland State University who felt that this sort of grievance studies, as they called it, to do with woke ideologies and so on, had taken over the academy and was stifling academic freedom of speech and was just being used to justify any kind of crazy academic ideas. And they ended up getting these published in peer-reviewed papers, crazy sort of theories when it came out. There was a bit of controversy over it, whether this kind of thing they'd said was really happening. But for me, it was just a fascinating indication of the way in which that conversation and the focus of energy had entirely changed at that point from seeing Christianity as this, you know, terrible threat, the 9-11 threat to science and critical thinking. They'd completely changed their focus over to people within the secular sphere who they felt were a far greater threat at this point, who they felt were, you know, the woke ideologues and so on, that they felt were starting to make it difficult to do free academic inquiry and everything. And you can look at other figures, you know, from that, like Sam Harris, classic example, you know, when was the last time he ever said anything about religion, frankly? He's entirely devoted all his energy to the culture wars and to kind of doing his kind of health and well-being mental thing. And it's just fascinating the way it's changed. And then you get alongside this, as you say, the growth of these interesting public intellectuals, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, others, who are suddenly coming and talking about religion and faith again in the Bible, but in a completely different way to Dawkins, Harris and Hitchens. And often having those discussions with other people who are sort of not where they are. So Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson obviously had these famous debates themselves on this. And for a short time, some of those got lumped under this label called the intellectual dark web, which basically comprised sort of folks who were sort of putting politically incorrect perspectives out there on all kinds of issues. But I think they are very symptomatic of a real change in the way we're talking about it now. And again, that's basically what I then spend the rest of my book talking about some of these individuals and the topics that they're reconsidering and basically reconsidering whether we should have thrown Christianity out with the bathwater that actually may be We do need a story to live by. And when you take away an overarching binding narrative like Christianity in the West, you suddenly realise, oh, what do we replace it with? I think that is a lot of where our current malaise comes from in terms of the culture wars that we're all experiencing around us now. I know that you've had Tom Hall and Douglas Murray, others on your show. I think they're probably friends. You said you think that they're kind of symptomatic of the new atheist movement. What do you mean when you say that? The way that they've kind of stepped out of that whole debate is interesting. I mean, Douglas Murray is an interesting perspective. Again, for those who don't know who he is, he's a sort of English journalist by background. Funnily enough, we were contemporaries at Oxford University, but we went off in very different paths. He now writes for The Spectator and published some kind of, you know, well-known books. He's very much on the right end of the political spectrum, as in right-wing end of the political spectrum. And interestingly, in the conversations I've had with him on my show, he identifies as an atheist or agnostic, and he was for a good period of time, very friendly, you know, and still is to some extent with some of those architects of the new atheism, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, used to go for lunch with Christopher Hitchens, you know, and it was really people like Christopher Hitchens who sort of persuaded him out of the Christian faith he did have up until his very early 20s. And he sort of let that go. But he said what he's come to realise, he kind of went through a sort of, you know, fairly materialistic, atheistic phase. But he now calls himself a Christian atheist. He's come to realise that the materialist atheist perspective cannot account for why he believes in human rights, why he believes in democracy. And he's not historically naive. He's aware that so much of what he values in Western culture is a direct result of our Christian heritage. And he's not going to sort of pretend that it somehow just appeared magically, you know, in the Enlightenment or something like that. And so he's one of those people who is kind of willing to ask his own team hard questions in that sense and say, well, look, folks, I'm not saying I believe in Christianity, but he's been saying, but if you call yourself an atheist, what have you got to offer? How is it going to fix the world that we find ourselves in? And I don't think it is. So he has what he would say is an enormous respect for 
an appreciation of Christianity, what it's gifted us, and a kind of almost wistful longing that if it could be true, he would like to believe it, you know. And that's a very different kind of place that he now finds himself in compared to some of those other, you know, folk I mentioned who were his mentors for a time in the New Atheists. And likewise, you know, Tom Holland, who you mentioned, who I'd say is actually probably a lot closer to being able to kind of identify as a Christian than someone like Douglas Murray. But he, again, is someone who just went on this intellectual journey, realizing when it comes to the things I hold most dear, my values, my fundamental instincts, they are bred of Christianity quite clearly. It was his own exploration of history that led him to conclude that. They didn't come from Enlightenment thinkers. They didn't come from the Greeks or the Romans. They came from the Christian revolution. And again, he's been a fascinating voice, very much from the secular trenches saying, can we actually live without this story? What happens when we discard this story? And I just find all of that a really interesting, fruitful, vibrant conversation to be having at the moment. I seem to see a pattern, which is at some point in a lot of the lives of the individuals who are part of this movement, they were deeply influenced by the new atheist movement in one way or another. And perhaps it was Dawkins or Hitchens or whoever, but they convinced many people in this movement that, yeah, there is no God. That's not intellectually viable. And yet they watched what's happened in the aftermath of jettisoning the Christian story from the West. And they've said, wow, the results of that are not inconsequential. <laughs> it's not good for society. And in fact, the very things that I want to value and I want to hold dearly are deeply rooted in the Christian narrative. And so I can't throw it away. I can't toss it to the side. And so now we're coming to a weird place of saying, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. And yet I have a deep respect for Christianity because it's created the structures in which I live and that I think make the world a better place to live in general. Is that a good summary of a lot of people that are part of this movement? I think that's where people find themselves. And I guess, you know, to put it very succinctly, a lot of people asking, can you continue to have the fruits without the roots? So as we cut off, as it were, the Christian tradition increasingly in Western countries, will it continue to produce the fruits that we've all enjoyed from that Christian tradition up till now in terms of human rights, democracy, and so on? And frankly, just a kind of a willingness to see the humanity in other people. I mean, obviously, I'm not pretending that Christendom has a spotless record in any sense. It's a very mixed bag in terms of the way the Christian story has been applied in different situations and over history, obviously. But having said all that, it has essentially given people a kind of a story of what life is, that they were made for a purpose, that each person is made in God's image and therefore has intrinsic value, worth and dignity, and that God cared enough for his creation to come in person, to die for it, a sacrificial death, and has imbued in us this sense that we are to go on bringing the good news of transformation and a new kingdom to the rest of the world. That has been the driving ethic in one way or another of Western civilization. Again, very poorly executed at times, but so much of that idea, even though people don't recognize it today, still informs just the idea of something like progress, moral progress, you know, that we are progressing towards some better, you know, even the phrase woke is used as a pejorative phrase these days, but where did it come from? It came from the idea that people are waking up to the reality of systemic injustice or whatever it might be, that they are becoming enlightened. These are all deeply Christian ideas when you actually dig back to them. They say there's an ultimate good, an ultimate standard and we have to be woken up, reborn, in a sense, to perceive it and to work towards it. It's just in modern culture, we now kind of talk the talk, but we no longer have the moorings that went with that of the biblical foundation. So I think what you increasingly see is kind of a religious outworking of that, where people have to get it right or they are cast asunder. They become the heretics, the new heretics of these quasi-religious movements, because it's no longer moored to the idea of our intrinsic worth and dignity being grounded outside ourselves and the idea of grace and forgiveness and everything else that comes with the Christian story. So I think it's just a fascinating kind of moment where we're asking, well, we're still being informed by fundamentally Christian ideas, but do we have the foundations you need for that transformative reality to happen in the world in the absence of God, in the absence of Jesus Christ as the driving force behind that? Can we do it in our own power? And I think increasingly people are finding when they try to do it in their own power, they just end up in massive 
Twitter spats, basically. <laughs> and it looks very messy and ugly. So yeah, that's kind of my big picture overview, I'd say, how it's working out at the moment. I want to come back around to this idea of how those who are maybe fully embracing critical theory are, on the one hand, in their practice, their discourse, very religious. They might not think about themselves that way, which does seem to be part of the reason why these new atheists are targeting it, is they see the same religiosity pattern taking place there. But on the other hand, like you said, how they've left behind, because they've jettisoned Christianity, they've left behind some key components like forgiveness and grace and mercy that help to temper the justice. <laughs> but before we go there, I just want to stay on Douglas Murray, Tom Hall, Jordan Peterson, this whole movement for one more second, because one of the questions I always find myself asking as I listen to them on your show and in other places, I've read all of their books. I mean, Tom Holland, fantastic historian. I've read every book he's put out. He's just amazing. The question I always want to ask is, but why not? I mean, is Christianity just a useful lie? Is it just a useful narrative that's produced some interesting things? So it's just maybe some sort of evolutionary thing that happened for the benefit of the species? What's the obstacle of going all the way and saying, gosh, if it does produce so much good, so much beauty, not exclusively, like you said, there's lots of dark things in Christian past. Why not come to see it as the truth? I feel like you must have read my book or something, Patrick, because you're bringing out issues that I do write about and deal with in the book. But there's a kind of way in which, particularly the Jordan Petersons and so on, the psychologists who are involved in this, it looks like sometimes they're framing it as Christianity is wonderful. Look at everything it's given to us. It's a really useful fiction. It's basically so helpful, but we're not saying it's true, obviously. We're just saying it's really useful. And on the one occasion I did get to ask Jordan Peterson in person, do you actually believe in God? He gave one of those classic Jordan Peterson answers, you know, of, well, it depends what you mean by God. There is a kind of sense in which many people are drawn towards the way in which Christianity makes sense of us as human beings, but they can't quite reconcile themselves to the metaphysical <laughs> reality of that, that that means believing there really is more than matter and physical stuff. There, there is an ultimate purpose, an ultimate mind behind the universe, an ultimate kind of directionality to it all. And as frankly, you know, a guy called Jesus who lived, died and rose again. For a lot of people, that is the stumbling block. You know, they like the concepts that we've been gifted. Human rights, wonderful. You know, scientific revolution arguably was a very Christian-led thing. Wonderful. So many aspects of our culture, art, welfare, education. Clearly, you know, it was the Christian revolution that drove them. And yet, you're right, a lot of people just find, does that mean that Jesus really was the son of God and rose from the dead? And of course, in that sense, you know, I don't think you can make the case that just because of all the wonderful things Christianity may have gifted us, that therefore it's true. All of that could still be wonderful, and it could still be a religious fiction, a kind of useful invention of some kind. For me, I as a Christian would say, I want to take the totality of everything out there and just weigh it all up. And when I do look at the extraordinary way in which Christianity has impacted the world, you've got to ask, what was at the centre of that that drove people to completely reimagine the way we should treat slaves and women and children? What was at the centre of that that made people completely turn the values of the culture they were living in on its head? And for me, that does mean that there must be some kind of event at the centre of all this that makes sense of this these radical shifts don't happen, you know, just because of purely kind of cultural socio-evolutionary reasons, in my opinion. And for me, the great thing about Christianity is it is a historical religion. It is birthed in a set of events in the first century that were written down not long after the time and which were testified to by an awful lot of people at the time. And to me, there are plenty of stories. I tell some of them in this book of people who have been convinced by the intellectual historical case for Christianity, as well as the extraordinary social you know, difference it's made in the world. And I find a lot of these people kind of teetering on the edge of that. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say that Tom Holland on some days finds that he just would be happy to call himself a Christian. <laughs> and on other days, he kind of thinks, ah, oh, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> the way he puts it is, one way or another, you've got to believe in a miracle, okay? If you're a humanist, if you're someone who believes in human rights and that sort of thing, there is no scientific explanation for that. There's no purely rational explanation for this idea of treating people with intrinsic value, equality, dignity, and everything else. He says, that basically, that's a theological view that you believe if you believe that. And he said, so if you're going to believe that, 
why not believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You know, it's like <laughs> for Tom Holland, you know, he would say he just finds the story totally captivating. He'd rather believe that story than the materialist story of reality. And so I think to some extent, for some people, it's about letting themselves go, kind of letting that kind of sceptical want to pull everything apart part of their brain go and let the imaginative side of their brain where, what if this really was true? What if we're living in a world that is truly magical in which there is a God who came, died, rose again, and everything changed because of that? And I feel like we're on the edge of people getting so tired of the materialist narrative and the fact that it hasn't delivered any answers that you might just get people suddenly thinking, you know what, in for a penny, in for a pound, maybe I can try this out and see if it seems to hold my weight. And I do see grown thinking individuals who have crossed that line as adults and have found actually this does seem to make sense of life. And I wonder whether we might see more of those as we go on. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. The idea of Christianity being a useful fiction to me feels a little bit like saying, well, you know, if you understand how a refrigerator works and there's all these different components that creates all the cooling that keeps your drinks and everything else cool inside of it. Well, all that scientific language that I might have used to describe it, Mm -hmm. it's all fake. It's all made up, but it works. So, you know, it would be irrational for me to say, well, if it works, that actually might suggest that the science behind it is describing Mm -hmm. something true. That's the implausibility bit for me, which I think you just highlighted. But the other half I love that you just said is you have to believe in a miracle either way. You know, it's a miracle that the world turned upside down, that human rights became a thing. And that's why Tom Holland is so great, because he understands that this was entirely contrary to how everyone thought. And so it's a miracle that everything changed. You have to believe in a miracle. It's either he rose from the dead or this weird thing happened that we can't explain. I think what's so helpful in a way, because Tom Holland knows the pagan world so well, he knows how unusual our moment in history is. And the problem is anyone living in the West at this moment in history kind of just assumes, well, it's just normal to believe in human rights, right? It's just normal to treat people equally. It's normal to want education and for people to act with compassion and for charity to exist. And people used to leave newborn babies out exposure was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world where, you know, if you had a child that you did not want because they were female, maybe because they were born with a deformity. You just left them. That was just normal practice. You left them to the wild animals. And today we think, my goodness, barbaric. How could they possibly? The only reason we've changed our mind on that is because of Christianity. Because we're so used to living in a completely Christianized West, we don't realize just how unusual, how completely contingent these beliefs we have are. And as you say, Tom Holland does an amazing job of showing that and making you realize yeah, something happened. And maybe just maybe what those first followers claimed happened is actually what happened. This is where I think the new atheism thing really runs aground, which is 
if you just use your observation skills, you know, the basic skills that, you know, science is rooted in looking at things, when you look at the world, the idea of human equality is simply not obvious. I mean, that's just why highly rational thinkers like Aristotle and Plato, they looked at the world and they said, hey, look, some people are born tall, some people are born short, some people are born men, some people are born women, some people are born with innate intellectual capacities, others are born without those innate intellectual capacities, some people are born with leadership qualities, others aren't. And because they saw these differences, they said, well, then it's clear that there's a hierarchy of humanity. You want to have the best leader, the strongest man, the most intellectual person on the top because he's the best sort of human. And all you have to do is look and see that that's the case. And so this is why I think atheism runs aground at the end of the day is it's not obvious. There's nothing obvious about saying that we are all equal in God's eyes. That's why I love Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, all these guys, because I think they're highlighting, especially Tom Holland, some of these dimensions for us. Absolutely. And I mean, I was just looking up on my phone, I was trying to find a quick quote, because it's not just, in a sense, the ancients who recognised that, of course, people are born different. There's no reason to believe that we're all equal and we should all be treated with equal compassion and dignity and everything else. You know, even modern thinkers, the ones who kind of, I think, actually grasp the nettle here are also recognising that you're not going to get to human rights through just science or anything like that. I mean, Yuval Noah Harari is, you know, an interesting secular thinker and, you know, published books like Sapiens and Homo Deus. But there's a passage, I failed to find it actually, so I'm going to try and sort of regurgitate it from memory, but where he just very clearly states, look, let's not pretend that our belief in human rights is anything but a Christian invention. That's what it is. You are not going to find human rights by sequencing the DNA of humans. You're not going to find it in a kind of scientific explanation. When the framers of the constitution and so on, uh, the declaration talked about the inherent equality of all men, it was because they were taking it from a clearly Christian framework. So I like it when even thinkers like Yuval Noah Harari, who is no friend of Christianity, is very much a committed atheist and very critical in many ways of various aspects of organized religion. But he's willing to say, look, let's not kid ourselves. The human rights exists outside of this religious fiction. And so I just think it's fascinating when you do get that honesty, both from people who are sympathetic to Christianity, like Tom Holland, and people who are actually not sympathetic to Christianity, but still recognize that you can't make this idea that human rights sort of emerged out of a vacuum, you know. I think I might have found the quote, human rights are just a story we've invented. They're not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut them open, look inside, you will find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any human rights. The only place you'll find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. And he goes on to say Christianity is the main one of those stories. Yeah. I think this is such a fascinating shift that we've seen. I want to go back to the atheists, to the James Lindsay's, the Peter Bergosians, that crew of people who have now really begun to tackle what they would call wokeism. I don't particularly like to use the word woke because I think it actually comes out of a sincere history, but it's the word they use. So, you know, we'll use it or critical theory theory is another common phrase. It seems like to me, for these atheists, the aspects of critical theory that draw the most ire for them are the transgender agenda and critical race theory. Those seem to be the two things that draw their attention. They're not super concerned about lesbian gay rights movement. That's not on their radar. It's those two things. Why are those the two things that they are fixated on? It's an interesting set of things that have coalesced into those two particular things. I would say one of the reasons why traditionally, if you like, gay and lesbian identities don't seem to be so much kind of in the crossfire on this one is partly because a number of the people who are in the atheist camp do identify as gay or lesbian. Douglas Murray, for instance, is gay and a number of others, you know, that you could mention. And to that extent, there's been a kind of a longstanding, in a sense, acceptance that gay people exist. And, you know, there's been a sort of, in a sense, when atheism was seen as, you know, within the liberal kind of side of the tradition, a lot of it was about, you know, championing the rights of gay people and so on against what was seen as some sort of religious theocracy. I think what's changed with transgender is that suddenly you've had an enormous number of new potential categories of identification that have been kind of presented. And rather than being something which is sort of clearly identifiable in terms of simply who you're attracted to and the kind of life you therefore may want to live, these are far more nebulous because they essentially exist purely within someone's mind at one level. Now, I'm not in any way 
disparaging those who experience gender dysphoria and those things. I think there are absolutely people who have a genuine sense that their gender does not match their biological sex and so on. But I think the big difference for why that kind of movement has come in for such criticism from certain parts of what was originally considered, you know, liberal atheist type folk like Bogosian and Lindsay and, and all the others we've mentioned, is because there's been a kind of a move to categorize those as genuine sacrosanct identities that must be recognized legally and in academia and in all kinds of other ways, which suddenly closes down debate over what that means. I mean, the obvious example for this, though she's not an atheist, is J.K. Rowling and the lightning rod of controversy she has begun in the whole transgender debate. Because again, there you have one of the paragons of politically liberal person who you would never have expected to become some kind of emblem of conservative right-wing viewpoint. But I think that the real case in point there is that it's not that J.K. Rowling objects to transgender people per se, it's when the rights of people claiming that identity start to conflict with what she sees as the hard-won rights of women and the feminist perspective, that suddenly you get these flashpoints. And I think that's why those particular issues have become so difficult and divisive is because suddenly there is a whole range of people now identifying people who are men who now say they're women and asking to be identified and accepted as such, even sometimes in the case where there has been very little physical change or social change for that individual. And suddenly you've got obviously lots of people asking the question, well, is that right? Does that mean that we can no longer have biologically female only spaces? Does that mean that anyone who simply says, well, I'm now a woman should have all the rights and privileges that have been won for women in the last you know, hundred years? And so I think suddenly there's this sense that, hang on, and almost just the speed at which it's all happened as well. It's like, you know, if you think about the gay and lesbian sort of change over time, you're talking about 50 to 60 years of kind of like gradual incremental change. The transgender thing is like five years, maybe. And that's a lot to do with social media and everything else. So I think those are the sorts of reasons why that's become a flashpoint. CRT, obviously, a lot of what I find in that whole debate is a lot of people who are kind of somewhere in the middle aren't saying anything that different to the Martin Luther Kings of this world and the people who fought for civil rights and everything else. It's just that it's become invested with a particular kind of dogmatism in certain circles and a kind of almost religious fervor that means that it provokes this reaction when people feel like we can no longer talk sensibly about these issues without feeling like, you know, we're going to be cancelled or whatever. So I guess it's just the stakes have just gone up an awful lot in these things. And people who once would have felt comfortable to potentially embrace those kinds of viewpoints suddenly find that speaking into those issues suddenly means that you have to embrace a whole subset of viewpoints that you don't necessarily want to. And it's something like that, I think. It's a fascinating question, I think, that as time goes on, we'll get more clear answers. It does seem to me that over the last five years, there's been a major political code switch, whereas words like free speech, free inquiry, and tolerance used to be left-coded words. They are increasingly right-coded words. And you could even draw the principle mm, out a little mm. bit more broadly, I think, and say that whereas in probably the 2000s, justice, you can think about law and order, you know, the war against terror, those kinds of things, that was right-coded language and forgiveness, tolerance, let's reform our prison system so that we can, you know, reform people. That was more left-coded and we're seeing a flip-flop happen where now all of a sudden you have people on the right talking more about forgiveness and tolerance, you have people on the left talking more about justice. Yeah. And so I wonder if yeah. that code switch explains to some degree why atheists who valued free inquiry and free speech and tolerance have also kind of gone through a political swap. It's not because they've changed, it's because the rules of the discourse are shifting in a really tremendous way. Yeah. And one of the kind of mantras often bumped into, even among new atheists, was very frequently, I disagree entirely with your view, but I will defend your right to say it to the hilt, basically. So it was like there was a view that I am going to absolutely destroy you in a debate when it comes to your views on God or religion or whatever. But I absolutely want you to be able to hold those views, even if I think they're ridiculous and unhelpful, you know. So there was this very strong motivation that what really mattered was the freedom for free inquiry and debate and to get to the truth at the end of it. I think the big change has been, and the big thing that's worried, obviously, some of those folk who were in that camp and have now switched their viewpoint to kind of critiquing those ideologies, is that 
they're worried that truth is at stake. I can no longer simply freely inquire into something. I have to believe a particular ideology. It's basically, it's for them, it's religious fundamentalism in a different guise. It's another theology that now they're being told they have to accept or else they cannot have a space in the public forum. So I think that's why there's been that change. And I mean, it's interesting because like here in the UK, just at the time of recording, at least there's quite a lot of controversy going on over the fact that just recently the head of the major political party in Scotland stepped down, Nicola Sturgeon, and the person who was most likely to succeed her, a lady called Kate Forbes, a very intelligent, you know, bright, capable young politician who was going to come out of maternity leave early to put her hat in the ring for the leadership contest. Now, it happens that Kate Forbes is a Christian and holds to a traditional conservative biblical ethic on marriage. And she, anticipating, knowing that this was going to be an issue for some people, she basically told at the outset, she said, I believe as a Christian that marriage is male and female. However, I'm never going to stand in the way of gay marriage in the UK and that kind of thing. And immediately a whole number of articles came out and it feels like her chance of becoming the leader of that party have just gone to zero overnight, basically. Now, what's interesting is you look at the articles of people defending her, they are simply saying, we need to be tolerant enough for people to be able to have these opinions, these religious opinions, and to be able to stand for public office. And it's very clear from everything she said that this would in no way kind of change the way she deals with people of the same sex. It wouldn't change the policies of the party in any way. It wouldn't change, you know, it's just her personal religious conviction, if you like. And I think the shift is that now that even to just internally have a different perspective on that makes you unfit for public office. And I think that's where the big shift has happened, isn't it? The the tolerance was to be tolerant of people who have a different perspective and lifestyle and so on. Now, as you say, when we talk about tolerance, we're simply asking for the tolerance to be able to privately hold a different viewpoint on something like that. And it's like a complete flip from the left to the right in that way. You've called it dogmatism multiple times on this podcast, and that does seem to get at the heart of maybe why it's so offensive to atheists is they don't want anything (laughs) dogmatic. They don't want anyone to tell them this is what you must believe on XYZ. And they especially don't want it when they feel as though material reality presses in the opposite direction, which is maybe why the transgender debate is so different than the lesbian gay debate is because there are sex organs that are physical and material. And so you've got atheists say, well, I believe in the material world. There are no gay or lesbian sex organs. There's nothing on the body that can tell you whether or not it's all an internal experience. I want to end with one last question. Douglas Murray, who you said wrote for The Spectator, he was very critical of the Church of England. I can't remember how many years ago it was. And he was critical because of their embrace of critical race theory. And N.T. Wright responded to him in The Spectator and said, you know, I agree with some of your critiques. However, the reason why we have critical race theory is because the church failed in its calling to present a truly, fully Christ-like vision of what it looks like to have ethnic unity in the church. And in fact, ethnic division was the main problem that the early church faced. And so we have resources in Christianity to deal with the kinds of racial problems that we're facing today. Again, the problem is we didn't see that in our New Testament and we didn't act on it. And what I appreciated about it is that I felt as though N.T. Wright was warning Christians who are perhaps tempted to become bedfellows with some of the new atheists because they have common cause, you know, they're co-belligerents in certain areas. It felt like a healthy warning to say, hey, don't get too common in your cause. So I'm just wondering, as you're looking forward to however the interaction between Christians and atheists or Christians and these kinds of respectful of Christianity agnostics goes forward, do you have any warnings for Christians about how close should we get? I mean, just before I answer that, it's funny you mentioned that interaction in the pages of The Spectator between Murray and she right, but I actually brought them together not long after that interchange had happened so that they could actually talk about it. It was on one of our seasons of our big conversation show. So I do encourage people to go and watch that episode. It's a really interesting discussion between them. We'll put that in the show notes. I listened to it. It was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. But very much replayed what exactly what you said, which was Tom sort of saying the reason that, you know, we are seeing these kind of more politicized and, you know, controversial ways in which, you know, people are asking for reparations and to you know, conquer systemic injustices because the church hasn't done the job it should have done in being the embodiment of this multicultural, multi-ethnic, united body in Christ. Yeah. And I do think there is this temptation, and I have seen it an awful lot of Christians thinking, oh, at last, you know, the atheists aren't having a go at us anymore. In fact, here's something we can agree on. You know, we're all worried about 
this transgender or CRT or whatever it might be. And I've seen a lot of kind of interesting kind of, yeah, people who once might have been on opposite sides becoming strange bedfellows in that sense. And to that extent, I think, I suppose it's natural. People are going to kind of, if they find something that does unite them, when you get a common enemy, it often makes you realize the aspects of the unity you do have, the things you can agree on more. I think you're right, though. There is a danger for Christians to some extent, just to be sucked into the way that the culture wars happen in secular culture and to think that that is the way we change the world. And it isn't. We are not going to change this world by simply engaging in the same power battles that the rest of the world is doing that. And I think for me, that's where it's really important. Even if you may sort of have similar convictions about certain issues to an atheist who, you know, is worried about certain woke ideologies and so on, you need to ask yourself, but what's firing that in me? Is it because I sort of have this passionate, you know, conviction that academic freedom is being stifled or there's a sort of truth issue at stake here? Or is it because I want people to be genuinely flourishing human beings who know their value as spelled out in the God who made them and the Christ who saved them? Because even if you kind of have a similar aim, maybe to some of those folk who you might sort of find yourself alongside, the place from which it's coming might be very different. They may be there to win a political battle, essentially. You're here for a very different purpose. You're here because you have been given this mission by God to bring his goodness and love and wholeness into the world. And that will change the way that you do it. I find myself, you know, in some areas in agreement with some atheists in other areas in disagreement, in some areas in agreement with the progressives and another there is in agreement with the conservatives. And I'm a mixed bag of things. I hope that whatever those issues look like and wherever my feelings might lie on them, it's coming from a place where I genuinely want to see every human being grow into the image and likeness of God and understand their infinite worth in him. And for me, if that's kind of the starting point, hopefully that will change the way you have those conversations because you're not just there to shout down the other person. You're there to actually listen to them, to love them, to genuinely engage with them and not to kind of ultimately see it all as some kind of big political battle, which sadly is where I do see the church, especially in parts of the USA, sadly heading, that it's become so enmeshed in the culture wars and the political stuff that it's starting to look a lot like the rest of the culture around it in that way. And that for me is is a huge shame because we're meant to look different. And whether that be in the convictions we hold or simply in the way we do it, the way we talk about those convictions, it's got to look different. It's got to look more like what you guys are trying to do, you know, truth over tribe. It's got to be something where we say we can hold our convictions, but the way we're going to have this conversation has to be better than the way the world is having it. And sadly, I think social media is so hard to push against. It just drags you into this polarized winner takes all kind of mentality. And my goodness, you know, the church needs to be so careful of being dragged into that, you know. Oh, well, that was beautifully said. I cannot wait to read your new book. We're recording this in February for the record. <laughs> and so we believe by the time this episode comes out, the book should be available for pre-order or so we're hoping. But what's the title of the book again? The title of the book is The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And I think the subtitle is something like why secular thinkers are reconsidering Christianity. So it's very much in line with what we've been talking about, looking at the way the conversations change. The main kind of metaphor that I use, and it was actually drawn from Douglas Murray, funnily enough, in that conversation he had with N.T. Wright, we referenced a famous poem by Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet called Dover Beach. And in it, it's got this famous line about the sea of faith once being full and at the round but how within his lifetime, all he can now hear is its long, melancholy, withdrawing roar. This idea that the faith has kind of gone out as science and the enlightenment has come in. So faith has kind of receded, the tide of faith. And the front cover of the book is of a tide coming back in. And my question is, and this was what Douglas Murray raised in the conversation, he said, tides go out, but tides come back in. Maybe we're due for the tide coming back in on faith. And I just wonder whether we are kind of seeing that turning of the tide just at this moment, because I think people are tired of the thinness, really, of the secular material narrative of life, which it can give you a brilliant new iPhone, but it cannot give you purpose and meaning and direction. And for me, the wisdom, the ancient wisdom of scripture is what people are tapping into again in so many of these ways. And they're realizing, can we live without this story? 
And for me, I just wonder whether we're standing on the edge of maybe that tide starting to turn. And we see it maybe in those interesting stories of the Petersons and Murrays and Hollands and others who are just starting to reconsider Christian faith again. So that's the book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And yeah, it should be out in September. Well, I am definitely looking forward to it. And by the time people hear this, you will have stepped away from your show of, gosh, 18 years. Unbelievable. How can people follow you and engage in the conversations that you're having now? An easy way is to go to justinbriley.com. That's my own website. Um, lots of exciting projects on the boil and uh, lots of other ways in which I'm hoping to speak into this space of theology and cultural apologetics and that kind of thing. So justinbriley.com is a great place to go. Okay, we'll go and visit that website. Justin, would you just mind praying for our audience as a way of closing? I'd love to. Well, thank you, Father God, that for Truth Over Tribe and uh, everything that you're doing through that and, and the way that, that you're seeking to help us to bridge the divides that are so pervasive in our culture. Thank you for the opportunity that I've had to speak into some of those divides with people on opposite sides and and the way that new thinking, fresh fruit can emerge, even in unlikely scenarios when you do actually bring people face to face. Help us in all of our interactions to be willing to to have conversations uh, with people that we might not expect to get on with, but in fact, we might find we have more in common than we realize. Help us to to be sensitive to your spirit as we do that, to not simply be another clanging symbol in the culture wars, but to be a genuine uh, person bringing your love, your grace, and your truth to those around us. Um, we ask this in your name and in your power. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.